Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, Under Pressure. So let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to 22, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, Christ Died for Sins. We've come to a passage in 1 Peter that's one of the most difficult passages in our Bible. Now, before I get to that, let's start with what I am sure is the ultimate purpose of the passage that I'm about to read. It's difficult to be a minority. And furthermore, it's difficult to be a minority on matters of ultimate importance. And even further, it's difficult to be a minority when others not only disagree with you, but strongly disagree to the point of being hated and excluded and persecuted. It's always a temptation as a Jesus-loving, Bible-believing Christian to clam up about your faith and to say as little as possible. Or, you know, when push comes to shove and you're in a place where, you know, you're forced to decide to compromise your faith so that you aren't always on the outside looking in. And so what can be said to Christians who really do love Jesus, but they're also weary of being on the outside of wider culture? I mean, what can be said that will make the matter of exclusion or even the hostility of the majority to be bearable. And if that's you, listen up. This message is for you. But here I must warn you, this is a difficult passage to understand. Let me make a promise. If you hang in there and try hard to get what is being said, I promise you're going to find that in the end it's going to be worth it. It will seem so much easier to be a minority once you hear what Peter said. So let's read our text. 1 Peter 3, 18 to 22. For Christ also suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So let me begin by pointing out three problem areas with this passage. First, from verse 18, how was Christ put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit? See, we would ask, was he not raised bodily, thus made alive in the flesh, as he died in the flesh? See, that's the first problem. The second problem, what does it mean that Christ preached to the spirits in prison? I mean, are they in hell? I mean, did Christ preach to someone in hell? I mean, to hear some talk about it, they actually believe that Christ went to hell and offered people a second chance. Here's the third problem. What does it mean in verse 21 when Peter says that baptism now saves us? Are we to think of baptismal regeneration or that, at least as some say, I mean, you aren't saved until you're baptized? And even though I've said that there are only three problems, let me throw in a fourth one. How do all these difficult concepts have anything to do with a matter of living joyously and faithfully when you're a marginalized, persecuted minority, a Christian? So let's start with the last problem. You know, yesterday when I ended my study of this text, I looked at the verse that was the verse just before the text we've read today, 1 Peter 3, 17, 
For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And then our text today, verse 18, begins by saying, for Christ also suffered. Yeah, he did. He suffered for doing good. He suffered according to the will of God. And to put this matter together, go back to 1 Peter 2.21, where we read, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. That is to say, when we feel excluded, please understand that our Savior was excluded as well. And when we feel we've done nothing wrong and still people say hateful things against us, remember, that's how Christ was treated. And God has called you to follow in Christ's steps. That is your calling. Very good. Let's take it one step further. Consider what Christ, the righteous one's sufferings, actually accomplished. So getting back to our text, verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Yeah, we were the unrighteous, and yet Christ submitted to suffering so that in the end, by and through his sufferings, he might bring us, those of us who have been chosen to God, he might bring us to God. It was once for all sacrifice that brought us to God. And so for everyone who thinks that exclusion and suffering means nothing, please remind yourself that the greatest suffering of all time accomplished the greatest purpose of all time. See, in that sense, dear Christian, don't just concentrate on your own suffering, but be assured that God has a purpose in your suffering as well. Of course, your suffering won't accomplish what Christ's suffering did, that is, a substitutionary atonement, but it may be an example. It might attract some people to God. Very good. I hope we can see where it's going. Now then, Peter wants to take it one step further. So let's consider, he says, the outcome of Jesus' suffering. How did his suffering end? So let's look again at verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Ah, there's our first problem. So let's solve that one. Jesus was put to death in the flesh, meaning he was put to death in the body, but he was made alive in the spirit. So please remember that the Peter who writes these words was also the Peter who saw the resurrected body of Jesus. And so since Peter saw Jesus bodily raised, we couldn't have him now arguing that Jesus was only raised spiritually. Indeed, the passage we've just read must mean one of two things. The NIV translates it as, he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, meaning it was the Holy Spirit who gave life to his flesh. Well, perhaps that's right. But it might also mean that whereas Jesus was put to death in the realm of the flesh, meaning that the flesh is the realm where you know everyone eventually dies, but he was made alive in the realm of the spirit, meaning in the realm of the spirit, even though unseen, this realm is the eternal realm. I think Peter is saying that Jesus' exclusion, his persecution, his suffering, his death resulted in his resurrection in a realm where his body would never be subjected to death again. And so all that suffering, well, it resulted in the best possible thing. And Peter reminds his readers of that very truth. Are you tired of suffering and being placed in a minority that's roundly hated by the majority? Hey, don't you remember? That's just like Jesus. And how did all that end up? Don't you know how it ended up? So don't be discouraged. Very well, it all makes sense. But then we come to verse 19, and it starts with the words, in which. And Peter's still speaking about the realm of the Spirit, that realm that produces indestructible life. 
So verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now that is, in the realm of the spirit, Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Uh, so let's stop there and acknowledge that there have been all manner of what I call very weird ideas from this verse. I mean, one such idea is that Jesus, after he died on the cross and before he rose from the dead, that he actually went down to hell and he preached to the souls that were there. And some say it was to give them a second chance and others say it was to proclaim his victory and bad for you, you were betting on the wrong horse or something like that. I mean, still others suggest that the spirits in prison are actually demons who fell from heaven. See, there are all manner of theories. I mean, one seems to be stranger than the next. But none of those theories are suggested in our text. Indeed, instead of just speculating as to who the spirits in prison were, and then coming to our own conclusions, let's consider what Peter's actually saying. Let's read verse 19 again and then add verse 20 because that's our context. Ready? Let's hear it in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Okay, these spirits that are now in prison are the very same ones that formerly didn't obey. Okay, here's the question. When was that? When they were disobedient, and our text tells us It happened during the days of Noah. You see, these were the unbelievers in Noah's day, and since that day, they are now among the dead and are in prison. And I say that because for those who argue that these must be angels, would you please notice that's just not the case. That's because the Bible never says that angels disobeyed during the building of the ark. Indeed, Genesis clearly says that it was human sin that provoked the building of the ark and the sending of the flood. And so we know these spirits are human beings. So why does Peter then call these human beings spirits? Well, hang on, I will talk about that. However, here, let's talk about the phrase, when the patience of God waited. And what's fascinating is that Jewish extra-biblical literature frequently describes mockery that Noah endured from his contemporaries. Well, we don't know what people said about Noah while he was building the ark, but according to 2 Peter 2.5, Peter calls Noah a herald of righteousness. Clearly, Noah took the time while building the ark to be a preacher, calling men and women and warning them about what was to come. Back to the Bible Canada recently wrapped up the Israel Experience 2022. And as usual, it proved to be a trip of a lifetime for those who attended witnessing firsthand the sights and locations where Jesus walked and taught is a surreal experience that can't help but make a profound impression on your walk in the Word. One guest wrote, My trip to Israel has tremendously impacted my faith journey by experiencing the Holy Land firsthand, accompanied by competent archaeological, theological, and historical teaching, all made possible by expert planning. We're so honored and privileged to be able to host this experience for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we're also so excited to announce the Israel Experience 2023 is now in its final stages of planning. And information can be found visiting backtothebible.ca or calling 1-800-663-2425.
We don't know how long it took Noah to build the ark. I mean, estimates vary. I think it took less than 100 years. But however long it took, Noah was engaged in preaching all the while, warning, urging people to repent of their sins. And when you think about that, you might be reminded of Romans 2 verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? And then the next verse warns us that if we presume on God's patience, we're storing up wrath for the day of wrath. That's exactly what Peter's describing here. God waited patiently for human beings to repent during the time of Noah. But eventually, judgment did come. So let's get back to the fact that Peter calls these people not people, but spirits. And why is that? Well, it's because Peter means to tell us that the spirits of these people are now in prison. Formerly, they disobeyed, but now they're in prison. And might I add, they await the resurrection of their bodies at the last judgment. That leads to the last question. Why does Peter say that Christ preached to them? Well, the best way to answer that is to say that Christ preached to them through the agency of Noah. Now, let me take you to 1 Corinthians 10, 1-4. There it says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. Now, that's a mouthful. And then it says, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. See here, Christ is understood to be the Messiah. That is, the spirit of the Messiah who was to come was inspiring the Old Testament preachers to preach. So let me put 1 Peter 3, 19 to 20 in my own words. Jesus had proclaimed the gospel through his servant Noah to the men and women of his day, although these men and women were so disobedient, they are now in prison. What does all that to do with our passage about not being afraid to be a minority? Well, the answer should now be plain. I mean, think about how Noah was a minority in his day. I mean, our passage says that only eight people in the ancient world were saved, and all the rest were drowned in the flood. That is, while Noah was preaching, The entire world was rejecting the gracious offer that was given through his lips to turn from their sins and live. See, in a very real way, what believers are facing today is not that much different. I mean, although our numbers are certainly larger than the eight that were saved in Noah's day, certain similarities exist. See, as believers faithfully proclaim the gospel of Jesus, it is as if Jesus is speaking through us urging men and women to be reconciled to God. And even though the world appears to be going on as before, we should not view God as being tolerant of sin or rebellion. God is patient. He's giving men and women time to repent. So that's what our passage means. Now, if you think that's all that Peter has to say on that subject, uh, that is, don't be discouraged. You're in a minority. You're excluded. But history's on your side. It explains to us how the holy men and women of the past acted when they were in a minority. And we know what was the outcome of their way of life. When the floodwaters came, it was the minority that were saved, not the majority. So stop here. It was very important. It's always unwise to stand with the majority. It was the majority that voted to crucify Christ. It was the majority in Israel that voted to worship idols. It was always the majority that goes along with the spirit of the day that are ultimately discredited. I mean, think of it in terms of recent history. It was the minority in Europe that hid Jews from the Nazis. 
The majority just went along because it always costs a great deal to stand against the stream. But remember this, if God is for us, we're in a favored position. Again, we might say, this would be enough. I mean, Peter has helped a persecuted minority, that is the followers of Jesus, to know their favored position. But he's not done. After he reminds his readers that Noah and his family were saved through floodwaters, Peter has something to say about baptism. So let's look at verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here again, we come to a difficult verse. That's because Peter tells us that baptism now saves us. So what does he mean? Well, let's begin by noticing that baptism corresponds to escaping through the water. And in some ways, baptism is like the waters of the flood at the time of Noah. How so? Well, let me suggest that the waters of baptism are like the waters of judgment unto death. Baptism, as it was practiced in the New Testament, was most likely practiced as a full immersion into water. We know that because the word itself means to immerse, and also because right here in this text, we're told it's not a removal of dirt from the body, and that phrase wouldn't make sense unless, you know, the entire body was immersed in water. Now, having said that, don't write me letters. I'm not arguing that any other form of baptism is illegitimate. That's not what I'm saying. But if you allow for immersion here, then notice that being immersed in water is being buried with Christ into baptism. It is, if you will, a baptism unto death. The person being baptized is being lowered into his or her grave. And as the waters close in around him or her, they're showcasing that they're united with Christ in his death. And in that way, the one being baptized is proclaiming their former way of life is dead. See, understand the passage in that way, and it helps us with the rest of the passage. That is, this is not about the removal of dirt from the body. You know, in the Jewish world, it was quite common for people to enter into a ritual bath, a cleansing. But that's not what baptism is. It's not about removing external dirt or even removing spiritual dirt from your spiritual body. It says, Peter, now you're going to notice this here, that the translation I'm using has the words that baptism is an appeal to God for a good conscience. I also have the New International Version before me, and it says it's the pledge of a good conscience. And notice the difference. If baptism is a pledge of a clear conscience, then it is a promise that the baptismal candidate makes. You know, from now on, I make a pledge that I will act in such a way that my conscience remains clean. But if it's an appeal, then baptism is something else. By being baptized, the person receiving baptism is in that act appealing to God. God, kill my tendency to sin. Let that be buried with Christ in my baptismal waters. And as I rise, let my resurrection with Christ be the power to live so that my conscience remains clean. So which is right? Well, I think the ESV does have it right. Baptism is an appeal to God. It's our request which we make to God. Oh God, may this act be seen in heaven and may you do in me exactly what this baptism signifies. Dead to sin, alive to you. Let me experience my baptism every day that I live after this. Now says Peter, that's what saves you. Not the physical act of baptism itself, but the thing that baptism symbolizes. I come to God offering nothing but my own sin. 
You know, in Christ, he puts my sin nature to death and gives me a new heart to now rejoice in the things of God. So let me say it again. The physical act of baptism, the removing of dirt from the body does not save. What does save is if when you are baptized, you are asking, I have asked Jesus to kill my sin nature and to give me a new heart. That saves. And your baptism, when done to a believer, says that. And God has answered that prayer through the resurrection of Jesus. That's what Peter says. Now to verse 22. Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Now, that's a wonderful way of ending this discussion of not being afraid to stand with the gospel with Jesus, of being in the minority, even if it's a vilified and persecuted minority. That's what Jesus did. That's what Noah did. That's what you did at your baptism. And how did it end for Jesus? Well, the answer is, well, he was exalted to the highest place. He sits at the right hand of the Father with all the authority of heaven subjected to him. And it's the authority of heaven that is the final word. See, when I read this, I think of the fourth chapter of Revelation. You know, in chapter two and three, you know, we read about the harassment that early Christians in the province of Asia were facing, persecution, how they must have feared the next edict that would come from the throne room in Rome. And then suddenly in chapter four, John takes us to another throne room, the throne room of heaven. And with that, all fear vanishes. The one who reigns on the throne of heaven has the last word. My dear Christian brother or sister, don't you fear being in a minority? Remember, would you? Whose minority you are a part of? And rejoice, be courageous, and continue to be winsome. Thanks, John. You know, I'm wondering, how should we understand the patience of Jesus when it comes to those who are unsaved? Yeah, I mean, uh, certainly if, uh, you know, my numbers are even close to being right that, you know, somewhat short of 100 years it took for Noah to build the ark, then, and if Noah was preaching the whole time, this reflects the patience of God. And we see this all the time. I mean, God consistently expresses patience towards those who are rebellious to his purposes. This is grace. This is mercy. This is God saying, I am giving you enough time to consider your ways. Of course, we have to also recognize that there comes an end to that when the patience of God is exhausted. It doesn't go on forever. Patience should be seen uh, not as God being, you know, willing to accept any sin, but rather that God is giving us time, that he is merciful. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again next week as we continue our series Under Pressure right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Do you have young children in your life, perhaps of your own or a grandchild? If so, we're pleased to offer you a new Bible-based activity for them. With Bible ABCs for Kids, our Bible teaching app, children can now switch between our previous letter tracing activity and our new spelling activity. In this exercise, kids will get to practice their spelling by unscrambling letters to reveal a poem offering biblical truth. It's so important to us that the children of God are being given the chance to foster a relationship with Him from a young age. And we hope that this new feature will help in drawing them to the Lord. To download this game for free, visit the App Store and search for Bible ABCs for Kids. 
or give us a call at 1-800-663-2425 for more information.